I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. Since I started covering him as a cub editorial writer at the New York Daily News, the Reverend Al Sharpton has been at the center of just about every political and national story I've written about. The civil rights and social justice leader is the consummate inside-outside player who brings the voice of the powerless to the corridors of power, which makes him the perfect person to talk to right now about the battle over voting rights, once an issue that enjoyed unparalleled bipartisan support. In 2006, you can pull it up, I was in the Rose Garden when they signed the Voting Rights Act reauthorization on the front row, invited by President George Bush, Carl Rove called and invited me. That's how much it was bipartisan. In this conversation, first recorded on January 13th for Washington Post Live, Sharpton talks about his conversations with the president and about some of the unsung heroes of the civil rights movement featured in his new book, Righteous Troublemakers, Untold Stories of the Social Justice Movement in America. Joining me now is the Reverend Al Sharpton. Good to be with you, Jonathan. All right, before we talk about about your book, we have to talk about the current fight over voting rights. Last month, you were among a number of black leaders who told the Biden administration it is past time for it to put its full weight behind voting rights legislation. Why don't you think the administration did that? Well, I mean, the, the rationale that we were given is that the president was having private discussions and was trying to get it done uh, privately. And uh, our position was that uh, this was not a private matter. Uh, we had also met with Senator Manchin. We met with other senators. And they didn't, we did not think they were going to move. And that he must be public. He said, and I said and was quoted uh, 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 by you and others, uh, he said on the night of his election, he being Joe Biden, that uh, Black America had my back, I will have yours. And there's nothing more critical in having our back, Mr. President, than this voting rights protection. And that's what our position was very publicly. I said it to him. I said it to the vice president. I said it to those in, his, um, in, in the White House staff. And I think that uh, it was a mistake for them not to come earlier. I was glad they did come. He made the speech that uh, I uh, felt was strong, and I was glad he did it. I just wish we had done it earlier. I I remember, Jonathan, when uh, the eight national civil rights group leaders met with the president in the summer, and we asked him to go out and be more uh, uh, strident in his support. It was on a Thursday, I believe we met, maybe Friday. But the next Tuesday, he went to Philadelphia and made mm-hmm. a voting rights. And uh, he invited us. I went. Uh, most of the group didn't go. I was there. I sat on up front with the president's sister. And he made a great speech. And I remember he came over to the rope line after and he looked at me. He said, Reverend Al, what did you think of the speech? I said, it was a great speech. It reminded me of uh, when I was a kid. And my mother had me sit in the living room watching Lyndon Johnson speak to the State of the Union and on a black and white television. And I remember Lyndon Johnson saying, we shall overcome in that speech. 
And my mother was moved. The president of the United States said we shall overcome. I said, this speech would have reached there. It was almost there other than one word you didn't mention. He said, what's that? I said, filibuster. He says, oh, you always going to be on me. I said, you got to do your job. I have to do mine. So I'm glad I was in Atlanta to hear him finally mm -hmm. mention that one word, filibuster. And I wish he had done it in the summer, but I'm glad he did it now. So at that speech in Philadelphia, you actually got a shout out from the president from the podium before he started that speech. As you just mentioned, you were in Atlanta for the president's barn burner of a speech. But I want to I want to talk to you about that in a second. And you met with both the president and the vice president, Vice President Kamala Harris, after that speech. And to put another, you know, finer point on it, um, just before this interview, you were on the phone with the White House. One, what was that conversation? What was that conversation about? Well, I wanted to have clarity on that the fact the president is going over to Capitol Hill today. And I wanted to have clarity with this joint bill. And I was talking to someone on the staff, I won't give a name, but it was in the White House, that the president is going to push this uh, in his meeting with the, uh, with the Democratic caucus, uh, as he has uh, done uh, with the uh, whole infrastructure bill. And uh, they said that nothing has changed and that uh, they are moving forward uh, to tell them, uh, to, for the president to tell them how important uh, this is. And I told them that I just did not want to make, be in any way misinformed that because we're dealing with a new bill going through the House, what Schumer and them are doing for their reason, that this would in any way not uh, be the message that the president has given that we need these bills passed. Mm -hmm. Uh, let me get your, your reaction to what I thought was the critical line in the president's speech in Atlanta. And that was the one, and I'm paraphrasing here, where he said to, to the Senate, to Congress, to the American people, you are either on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace, the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor. What did you make of that, uh, of that line, that distinction he made? I think it was an important distinction. Now, I think it's been distorted because he did not say, if you don't vote for this, you're Bull Connor, or that if you don't vote for this, you're George Wallace. He said the sides of Bull Connor, George Wallace, or Martin Luther King, or, jo or John Lewis, or Abe Lincoln. Now, to say that, oh, he's calling them Bull Connor is to say he's calling himself Abe Lincoln. And it's not what he's saying. He's saying there are sides in this country. And the side of those that would disenfranchise or impede people's right to vote is the side that George Wallace and Bull Connor and others were on. The side of giving everyone one person, one vote is the side Martin Luther King and John Lewis and Abe Lincoln was on. So I think that people that, want, that do not want to deal with the facts of the matter and the divide that has been in American history, want to try and nitpick like he was name calling when he was identifying the divide in this country and those that have stood on the divide. And rather than say, I'm on this side of the divide, they want to say, well, you shouldn't call me a name. He didn't, he identified <laughs> side. Right, and, and I thought that that was a, the, the most important line in the speech 
because it clarified for the American people, um, and especially those who haven't been paying attention to this, like you and I have, what's at, what's at stake here. Senate Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell took to the floor of the Senate uh, and was you know, highly offended by what the president said, even said that it was, quote, profoundly, profoundly unpresidential, your reaction to the uh, leader Mc well, uh, McConnell. Well, I, I mean, uh, after four years of Donald Trump, uh, how do you define presidential? But I, I think that if uh, that was unpresidential, then Lyndon Johnson was unpresidential to advocate the Voting Rights Act and, uh, and talk about we shall overcome. And on and on and on, you could cite presidents that have taken firm stands. What I think it was, it reminds me, uh, Jonathan, uh, my mother was from uh, Alabama. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. <clears throat> my mother said to me something I never forgot. She said that uh, you don't know anything about the South. You, I grew up uh, farming. She says, I can tell you one thing about farming. If you throw a brick in a pile of hogs, the one that hollers is the one you hit. And I've always thought in my career that when people start hollering, it's because you hit them. McConnell sounded like somebody that was hit because what was unpresidential about saying where the American divide is? What was unpresidential about challenging people to protect the right to vote? Let's understand what we're talking about now. We're talking about protecting voter rights, something that Mitch McConnell and others have voted for. So right. what is wrong with it now, but it was right back then? Mitch McConnell made great, eloquent speeches about the need for voting rights. So why was it right then and wrong now? What changed other than Donald Trump and this whole steal the election kind of big lie that he's running? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is what they do not want to answer. So they come with these kinds of, oh, I'm offended. Oh, this is not presidential. Oh, this is incoherent. No, it was very coherent. Which side are you on? That's as coherent as you get. And I would only add, what changed since the last time you voted for the exact voter protections we're asking mm -hmm. for now? And as the president pointed out in his speech, six, well, in 2006, the, the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized unanimously by the United States Senate in 2006. 16 of those Republicans who voted for that reauthorization continue to serve in the Senate now and are blocking both the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. One more question on this and then we'll turn to- 16 of them who voted for it. Let me, let me tell you this, in 2006, you can pull it up. I was in the Rose Garden uh, when they signed the Voting Rights Act reauthorization on the front row invited by President George Bush, Carl Rove called and invited me. That's how much it was bipartisan. 2006, I had run in 2004 to try to get the nomination to run against George Bush. George Bush invited me to the signing, a Republican president, and Carl Rove, his political guy, called and invited me. That's how much everybody agreed on voting rights. So what happened to those 16 Republicans? What happened to the Republican Party? other than the race-tinged demagoguery of Donald Trump has made them something other than who they were, less known what the country was. Mm -hmm. So, Rev, the, um, the conventional wisdom is that both those voting rights bills aren't going to go anywhere. 
that the that then the move to change the rules uh, and to carve out uh, an exception in the filibuster for them to be uh, to be approved by a simple majority vote that's not going anywhere. Assuming the conventional wisdom becomes reality, what then? What? What is what is well, the plan think, going forward? I think that, I think that uh, there's several things that could happen. We we're going to have to fight state by state. Uh, in terms of uh, these legislative laws, we have to challenge them in the courts, and we're going to have to keep fighting uh, around the courts, uh, around the Supreme Court and the Justice Department coming in. We're going to have to use a multifaceted uh, kind of, of of strategy, including whatever the president can do in executive order. But we shouldn't have to do that. Uh, if they can do carve-outs around judicial nominations, if they can do uh, ways to get around things for budgetary items and to get around things as in terms of the filibuster, they can do that here. I think that it is important, and I've said to Senator Schumer, that they proceed and get this vote. We need to have a roll call on who's on what side at this time in America. And I think that people need to be clear or their senator is saying that I am not for voting rights, especially the 16 that was in 2006. Mm -hmm. We need to call the roll. We need to know where we are. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. More recently, last month, the Senate carved out an exception to raise the debt ceiling. Uh, so, you know, that rule isn't as sacrosanct as it has been discussed. All right, Rev, let's talk about, about your book, Righteous Troublemakers. Why did you decide to write it? You know, I, I, uh, I've been to any number of occasions that I would sit there and marvel at the people that would come. I'm talking about marches that I've helped to call and organize for decades. And I opened the book by talking about in uh, last year, when I was doing a eulogy for George Floyd, I just out of uh, spont spontaneously said, we need to march on Washington. Martin Luther King III was sitting on the first row. And I said to Martin in front of the whole audience doing a eulogy, Martin, we need to go in Washington. I'm calling for a march in Washington. And over which he looked at me and nodded, but he later said to me, Al, how are you going to call a march? Uh, we have not raised any funds. We have no structure. You have an organization to do it. How are we going to do this in a certain amount of months? I said, we can pull it off. And we did. Mm -hmm. And even beyond my own expectation, we had over 200,000 people there in the middle of a pandemic, August mm -hmm. 28, 2020. In the middle of a pandemic, we had to 
to have the people temperature taken as they come in. And uh, we was very concerned we were not dealing with a super spreader and that there'd be no violence. As I was walking to the steps, because we speak from the steps where Martin's father spoke in 63, I noticed in the crowd, security was bringing me through, and I, I think I had one of George Floyd's uh, family members with me. And uh, I saw an old man, looked like he had to be in his 80s. And he was jumping up and down, very, very spry. And, and he had something in his hand. And for whatever reason, I told security, I said, see what that guy wants. He's an old guy. He's all these people around him. It was a huge crowd. And they brought him to me. And he had in his hand a button. And he said, Reverend Al, I was here in 63 with Dr. King, and I want to be here with you today. And he had a button saying, Freedom Now, August 28, 1963. Little button, it, it mm -hmm. was rusty. And he went back in the crowd. And that man haunted me. I said, you know, people that have been the ones that march and fight, and they know they're not going to be on the news tonight. They won't be in the Washington Post or New York Times tomorrow. They won't get any recognition. They're the ones that make movement. And I want to write a book about people that never got the limelight, that fought anyhow. They were the righteous fighters. And while I have a, a certain amount of limelight, I want to put some on them. So I wanted to write about attorney Paulie Murray, who wrote a lot of the legal theories and arguments that Thurgood Marshall used in the 1954 Supreme Court Brown versus Board of Education fight that led to the desegregation of public schools. She wrote a lot of those basic things he used, Paulie Murray. They did not give her limelight because in the 50s, they weren't going to give it to a woman and certainly not to a gay. I wrote mm -hmm. her story. I write about uh, Claude, uh, Claudette uh, Colvin. Nine months before Rosa Parks was arrested for not giving up her seat in uh, front of the bus in Montgomery, Alabama because of the segregation laws, Claudette Colvin was arrested nine months before that in the same Montgomery, Alabama, for not giving up her seat in front of the bus, same segregation laws. They wouldn't rally around her, black leadership in that town, because she was dark-skinned and pregnant and wasn't married. She wasn't the right image. But she was one who helped inspire Rosa Parks. I write about her story. I write about Amelia Boykin, who was the real mm -hmm. impetus of the Selma movement, where Martin Luther King and them used to stay in her house. These unsung heroes, not only did I write it for their benefit, and certainly I think they ought to benefit, I wanted people to understand that this movement does not come from some kind of special people. This movement for social justice are ordinary people that did extraordinary things and got nothing for it. Because sometimes we think that it takes people with special gifts to do this. No, it takes people that are committed and that risk it all. And I think those of us that have some limelight ought to give them credit. If we call marches and rallies and voter drives and nobody showed up, nobody would pay any of us any attention. It is those people like that man in the crowd that make these movements work. And I wanted to tell their story so people would be inspired to be involved themselves, knowing that they can make a difference because those are the people that really made the difference. And you know, I'm glad you I'm glad you did this because I do think a lot of people think that the folks who were part of the civil rights movement were these mythic figures who were sort of 
born into being being heroes. And three years ago, this past week, I and Clarence Jones and uh, uh, Bob Moses, uh, um, Ambassador Andrew Young, and a bunch of other, some of the civil rights veterans were gathered at Sunnylands. And Minnie, Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, who was one of the Little Rock Nine, one of the things she said at the table was, we, because young leaders were gonna be coming in the next day, she said, the one thing we need to do is to demystify for them what all of this was. We were just, as you said, ordinary people who were thrust into extraordinary circumstances and we, and we did what we, what we had to do. Um, so I, I, am, I am glad you wrote this book and put the spotlight on, I've, I've heard, of course, of Amelia Boynton. I heard, of course, of uh, Claudette Colvin. And there's a great house song by Monique Bingham called Claudette, which you should look up because uh, it's got a great, uh, a, a great lyrics. But I didn't know about Pauli Murray at all. And I was thrilled to read about her. Rev, in the little bit of time that we have left, um, you, as you- That's one you, of the achievements of my life because I spent the last couple of decades reading Jonathan Capehart. Now Jonathan Capehart is reading me. That's so touching to me. <laughs> this is not the first book of yours I've read. You've been on this podcast before when I um, had you on to talk about Rise Up, which is a, right. a great um, uh, manifesto and guide sheet for emerging uh, emerging activists. But you know, you while writing about George Floyd and the murder of George Floyd, you tie his murder uh, in with the civil rights protests of the 1960s, and writing that the hardships and victories of all marginalized groups had merged into a single single fight, and how the bravery of everyday people had been quote overlooked or cast aside. How has the fight for social justice changed from the 1960s to today? I think that the change is that now we see a lot of people because of social media that are getting the message. Uh, when we first started fighting police brutality, there were no way of videoing. Uh, so it's changed. The technology has changed it. Uh, but in many ways, it stays the same. You still see uh, those that are so-called grassroots and those that are more established having their tensions. They, they work through generational tensions. And I tell uh, a lot of young people, even in National Action Network, this is nothing new. When I was younger, we <laughs> fought the older God. We thought John Lewis and Jesse Jackson and them were the older God in our way. And now we're the older God. And then uh, Stokely Carmichael and them felt Dr. King was too uh, nonviolent and too mild. All of these tensions are the same that we've always seen. The only question is what we get done. At the end of the day, no one knows about the generational fights of the 60s. No one cares about the grassroots against the elite. What they care about is we had the Voting Rights Act of 65, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Open Housing Act of 68. And at the end of the day, if we cannot get legislation like voting rights, like police reform, then all of our bickering and drama is for nothing. Let's score. One thing an activist told me, and I know we're out of time, that I never forgot when I was a kid. I remember the first time the newspaper started criticizing me in New York. And I remember an old activist said to me, he said, Reverend Al, do you watch football? I said, sometimes. He says, think of activism like playing football. I said, what do you mean? 
He said, half the stadium is cheering you. Half the stadium is jeering you. Don't get intoxicated by the cheers and don't get depressed and react to the jeers. Your job is to get the ball across the goal line. And always remember that they're going to try to tackle you if you have the ball. And sometimes you might have to go across that goal line with a tackler on your back. But always remember in, when they try to tackle you, it's only because you must have the ball head to the goal line and ignore the noise of the crowd. And that's what I'm telling the people to do in this book. I'm gonna squeeze in one more, one more question for you real fast. Ben Crump, every time you introduce him, every time you talk about him, you call him, quote, uh, the, the Attorney General of Black America. Talk about the impact he has had on the social justice movement uh, since he emerged on the scene. I think the impact is that he has brought a legal expertise uh, that we need. Uh, we once had, of course, Thurgood Marshall, who then became a judge, and then we had a Johnny Cochran. In this era, we needed a Ben Crump who could bring it in the courtroom, who could meet with prosecutors and talk their language, who could also uh, work with those of us that are in the civil rights leadership to interpret to us the law. So when we get to Brunswick, Georgia at a trial, or Minneapolis with the George Floyd trial, it is Ben that deals with the prosecutors, talks their language and explains it to us. So we're not just protesting. If we can get it in the courtroom, we need the interpreter. And he's the one that interprets. That's why I call him the attorney general. He protects our legal rights, defends it and interprets it to us. And you notice he doesn't try to lead a march. He doesn't do what we do. He's peerless in terms of the legal defense and legal expertise. And as somebody who knew Johnny Cochran and who met Thurgood Marshall many times, when I say it, I'm not just shooting from the hip. Reverend Al Sharpton, founder of the National Action Network, author of Righteous Troublemakers, Untold Stories of the Social Justice Movement in America. Thank you very much for coming back to Capehart. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.